Today we're going to wrap up a story that we started back in Acts chapter 3. Now today we're going to be in Acts chapter 4 and verse 23. So if you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me right now. Acts chapter 4 and verse 23. And like I said, we're, we're wrapping up a story that started way back in Acts chapter 3 and verse 1. And maybe you remember what was happening there. There were two leaders to this movement, Peter and John. And they were on their way into the temple, going through the gate called Beautiful. And there was a guy there that was 40 years old, and he had been lame from birth. He wasn't able to walk, and he's sitting there at the gate. And Peter looks straight at him and says to him, as he's begging for money, he says, I don't have silver or gold to give you, but in the name of Jesus Christ, get up and walk. And the guy gets up and walks. It's an amazing miracle. He's made physically whole. But it's a picture of more than that. It's a picture of salvation. As the guy goes walking into uh, part of the temple courts, we would have never been allowed to go before as a cripple because he'd be considered unclean. And so it's a picture of spiritual acceptance. It's a picture of salvation. And people start gathering around. It's exciting. And everything in the book of Acts up to this point has been exciting. Remember, they get their mission. Believers get their mission. You will be my witnesses. It's the theme for the whole series that we're going to go through. You'll be my witnesses. Now they have a purpose in life. They've got what they're supposed to be doing. There's no real question about this. God's already said it. Here, you will be my witnesses. And then Acts chapter 2, then they receive power to be those witnesses. It's exciting. It's all good stuff. You know, we're number one type stuff. It's great. We're on the Christian team. And so they're cheering. They're excited. Then in Acts chapter 2, towards the end, 3,000 people in one day trust Christ as their Savior. They start living in community with one another. Then chapter 3, what happens is God shows us that he's doing it the same way then as he's doing it now. He changes one life at a time. And he changes this one man's life in Acts chapter 3. And he changes one guy, and then that guy impacts a family, and then the family gets changed, and the community gets changed, and the city gets changed, and the world, eventually what happens is the world gets turned upside down in the book of Acts. And he starts by changing a life. And he changes this guy's life, and everything's going great, and the people are gathering around, and more and more people are trusting Christ. Up to this point, there are 5,000 men plus women and children. And so God keeps adding to their number, but then chapter 4 happens. Chapter 4 is the first time we see persecution in the Christian church. And then it becomes a regular part of the Christian church. Remember in chapter 4, the name was a big deal. And we saw guys, they had the names. Annas, Caiaphas, those were the the big names. Those were the most powerful men in the Jewish world at this time. They had a political and a religious position. They sat on the Sanhedrin, a council of 71 men that were the supreme court of the day. And they had Peter and John arrested for preaching in the name of Jesus. And they brought them out, and in verse 7 of chapter 4, they said, By what power, by what name do you do this? And then Peter, the same guy who was ashamed of being associated with Jesus because of his fear of these men before, looks Annas in the eye and says, It's by the name of Jesus, whom you killed, but God raised from the dead. It's the only hope you have, Annas, is the name of Jesus. And he says that famous verse in verse 12, For salvation is found in no other name, in no one else. There's no other name under heaven given to men by which we must It's not an option. If you're going to be saved, you must be saved by this name. There's no other name. And so they have incredible boldness. And remember, what happens last week is then the Sanhedrin evaluates them, and they take note of them. They live noteworthy lives. And remember what was noteworthy about them? It was noteworthy that they had been with Jesus. Because when the Sanhedrin looked at these men, it reminded them of Jesus. Because they had boldness. No one had ever been as bold as Jesus confronting the religious leaders, speaking from the scriptures. They had a knowledge of the scriptures that reminded them of Jesus because they could take the scriptures, and they were untrained men. They were ordinary people. And they could take the scriptures and reason from them in a way you couldn't refute. It was like Jesus. But not only that, it was the way they interacted, even with this man. And the compassion they showed, not just a miracle, but the way they interacted with this guy, it reminded them of Jesus. And so they took note. And they had to figure out what to do. And so they have the little little huddle together with their 71 guys, and they send them out. And they come up with an idea, and you know what they decided to do? They decided to command them, not request, 
Not suggest, hey guys, it would be nice if you wouldn't talk about Jesus anymore. Kind of cramps our style. You know, it's none of that. 71 most powerful men in the world command them not to speak in the name of Jesus. You're to no longer speak in the name of Jesus. And you know what Peter does? Uh, we can't obey that. Sorry. We must speak about Jesus. Not just because he told us to. Not just because he's our ultimate authority. But because we love him. And because of what he's done in our lives, we have to talk about this, they say. And then we didn't spend much time talking about it last week. But in verse 21, and that's really where we pick up this week, what happens is it says that the Sanhedrin threatened them further. Now, we don't know exactly what those threats were, but if you read chapter 5, we can infer what they were, and it was probably a death threat. They probably said, if you speak in the name of Jesus Christ again, we will kill you. And at the very least, we get word of this, and we don't know what to do, then we're going to flog you. And the flogging, and they've seen the floggings. If you've seen the Passion of the Christ, it's that kind of flogging like Jesus received in the Passion of the Christ. It's bloody, it's gruesome, it's for the sake of torture. And we'll stop at 39 because beyond that would be considered a death sentence. But you'll get 39 lashes. And so that's the pressure these believers are under now, Peter and John. And see, up to this point, they didn't know what would happen. Now they know what will happen if they obey God. They're experiencing a pressure unlike they've ever experienced before. And so what do they do under pressure? That's what we're going to talk about today. Join me in verse 23, Acts chapter 4. Verse 23 says, On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. So when the chief priest told them, you're not to speak in this name anymore, and the threats they gave, all that stuff. They reported all that to their community. And verse 24, When they, the community, heard this, they, together, corporately, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. And this is what they prayed. And you get verse 24 through 30 as the prayer. Sovereign Lord, they said, and that's the theme of the prayer. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heaven and the earth, the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. They quote Psalm 2 here. It says, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord, against his anointed one. And in their words again, verse 27 Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. And so they intended wickedness. They wanted to do the most evil act in all of human history. And what did they accomplish? Verse 28, they did what your power and will decided beforehand should happen. So even in their bad intentions, the best they could do was your plan, God. That's how sovereign you are. That's how in control you are. Verse 29 is their request. So we've got five verses talking about God's sovereignty. Now we've got two on request. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand and heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant Jesus. Then look what happens. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. Can you imagine that? <laughs> it's quite a prayer meeting. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. And so then they obeyed. They fulfilled the very thing that they were requesting, the very thing that they were commanded to do, to be bold. They were his witnesses. They were to make disciples. And so they were given these commands, and they want to keep these commands, and they pray for enablement, and they pray about his sovereignty. It's all rooted in his sovereignty. But before all that prayer is the context of what happened. In verse 23, you can go back up there and glance at it if you want, but they go to their people, and they talk about all the stuff that the chief priests had said, all the pressure they were experiencing in their lives. You think about it. Do you have pressure in your life? Think about all the pressures you have. And just we can kind of survey and hit. Think about what the general pressures are for everybody in our population. For every person here, there's pressure for different areas of life. Everyone has the pressure to sin. Now, I realize that can be specific to individual people, and maybe your sins that you're most tempted with are different than mine, and maybe they're different than other people's. 
maybe your sin is lust. Maybe that's the thing. And you know, lots of people, that's a struggle. And so computer stuff and you see the magazines at the grocery store or different advertisements, different things that happen. Maybe that's your struggle. And so that's the pressure for you. Or other people, it's gossip. You got all this information. We get more information now than ever before. And it just kind of flows off your tongue. It just kind of wants, as soon as you get it, it wants to go back out. And maybe for some people, it's slander. That's your temptation. You want to talk other people down because you feel like it makes you look better or or maybe it's food. You know, food's out there as a, as a big temptation or power or money or various different things. And so whatever you're, you kind of clump all those together, we'll just call that sin pressure. And so there's sin pressure in all of our lives. Not only is there sin pressure, there's work pressure. If you have a job, there's pressure of some sort, whether it's because your boss has expectations or maybe you are the boss and so your employees, they want to get a check so they have expectations. Or maybe it's a coworker. Maybe it's your family just expects you to keep that job and continue to do a good job. Or maybe you work on commission and there's pressure with making sure something gets produced. Or maybe you have to create. And there's various different pressures with work. So there's sin pressure. There's work pressure. There's social pressure. You know, a lot of times we think that once you get out of high school, peer pressure is gone. You know, I'm not pressured anymore to spike my hair and peck my pants. <laughs> it dates me, by the way. Whatever your pressure was when you were in high school, you think it's all done then. It's not. There's all kinds of studies out there that show that you make decisions based on the people that are in your life, the people that are around you. It influences the clothes that you wear. It influences the vacations you take. It influences the way you raise your kids. Sometimes it's good. Sometimes it's bad. There's positive and negative pressure, but you've got social pressure. And so you've got social pressure. You've got work pressure. You've got probably relationship pressure. Depending on the more relationships you're in, the more different pressures you have from those things. You've got role pressure based on your specific situation in life, whether you're a parent whether you're the employee, whether you're the manager, whether you're the brother, whether you're the oldest brother, the youngest, maybe you're the only Christian in your family. There's all kinds of things that, that make pressure in your life based on your role in society. And think about that for myself. I've got pressure. It's kind of a blessing and a cursing uh, being a pastor. It depends on how you look at it and whether you're having a good day or a bad day. And uh, I get all the time where I'll bump into people out in the community and sometimes they'll say to me, hey, you're that guy. You're the guy from the movie theater that stands up and talks, the pastor guy. And I have never seen them before in my life. Like, I'm confident I didn't just forget their name. Like, I don't know who in the world they are, which can be a blessing and a cursing. Now, now here's why. Because I'll go to other public environments. I don't know who there knows who I am and who doesn't. And so I'll take my kids out in public, which that's a, an adventure every time. And, and, and so we'll go to, when we go to a store, I almost always say to them, hands by your side, don't touch anything. Like, don't ask for anything. Don't touch anything. That's kind of how it's going to go when we go in there, right? We go in there, they're kids. And so, to the most breakable thing possible on the shelf, right? And say, run right over to that. And I want to say at that moment, get over here. I told you, don't touch, do you not listen? But I don't know if someone's going to then walk up and go, you're that guy. <laughs> so you know what I say? Come hither, thou young one. Don't touch such delicate items, you know? <laughs> it's not what I say, but this is what I should, you know, the pressure is there. You got role pressure, you got social pressure, you got pressure from work, you got financial pressure, but you got bills to pay, you got peer pressure, you think about all this. Now, here's the deal all the stuff I'm talking about so far, that's just normal life, everyday life. Now, every week at our church, we get people that submit prayer requests. We have a prayer team that prays every week for stuff that people will write on the, the connection card, also has a spot for prayer requests, and then people also submit them through the website. Let me tell you, the, the most popular one, it seems like right now, um, I haven't actually done a survey on this, but it seems like the most popular one that people put in there is jobs. Uh, job loss, or I've been looking for one for a while and I can't find one. And so put that pressure on top of all the normal daily stuff. Or another one that's popular is health. Um, something goes different than what we planned. Something goes wrong, goes bad. There's an accident, uh, cancer, uh, some other diagnosis you come up with. Th th those things happen. 
And so when that stuff happens, you add that pressure. Or sometimes people will put relationship type stuff. And a lot of times you don't give a lot of details because they don't want the other person to look bad or, or whatever situation. But marriage is a big one that's a, a prayer request. So what are your pressures? I got all the daily stuff, and then you add some of this other, and maybe something's going tough in your life. Maybe there's tragedy, maybe there's trial, maybe there's crisis right now, and you add that pressure. And let me ask you this. If you could ask God to take away one right now, we all have a list, probably at least ten you can think of. If you could ask him to take away one, which one would you have him take away? If you could take away one pressure today, which one would you pick? And here's the bad news. He's probably not going to take it away today, Okay. I'm sorry. You can be mad at me about the message already. That's not what you came here to hear. I totally understand that. But let me ask you this. What if maybe, maybe instead of taking that pressure away, what he wants to do is use that pressure in your life to shape you and mold you into the image of his son, Jesus Christ, the very work that he's promised to do in you. We talked about it last week. Being confident of this. He who began a good work in you. If you're a believer in Jesus, he's begun. It's not done. He's begun a good work in you to transform you into the image of his son. And maybe he wants to use that pressure as part of the thing that molds you into the image of his son, Jesus. I love what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He says this. He says, We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. And you see a theme in 2 Corinthians. It's very interesting. It's about the grace of God. And the theme is this, that his grace will be sufficient, even in the difficult times. That in my weaknesses, that he'll be made known. And that he will give us the grace to endure the difficult circumstances. And so maybe what his plan is in your situation, whatever that pressure is that you'd pick to take away, because even if he won't take it away, at least you know the one that you'd pick, right? That's your least favorite one. And so maybe he's going to use that one to be the very thing that shapes you more into his image and makes you more like his son Jesus so then he can put his son Jesus on display through your life. See, one of the things that blows me away about this is these guys are under such intense pressure. Their life is on the line. At the very least, they're going to face an intense beating, a flogging. And do you see what they request? Go to verse 29. That's where the request starts. It says, Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. They don't ask for deliverance. They don't say, take me out of the situation. They don't request, change the circumstances. They say, change us. They don't pray for deliverance. They pray for obedience. Enable us, give us the ability to obey the very things you've already told us, that you will be my witnesses, that you will preach the gospel, that you will make disciples, that help us do the very thing you've told us to do, rather than remove this and make this all easier. Instead, what God does is he uses this pressure in their life, and this pressure, what it does first is it drives them to prayer. And that's what we see, and that's our first point, that pressure should prompt us to prayer, should lead us to prayer, that pressure in our lives should be the very thing that leads us to not just general prayer, not just generic, like, God be with us. That's not what you pray when you're in the middle of a tragedy, right? It's passionate prayer. It's a crying out to God. And that's what happens with these believers. Look at it. They're under this pressure that they could be killed. At the very least, they're going to experience a flogging like what Jesus experienced, where there's a professional torture that had a cat of nine tails. It's a whip. It has a bunch of different leather strips on it. And at the end of them, it has metal and bone. And he, he knows how to use that to rip the flesh off your body. And they've seen this happen. It's bloody. It's gruesome. And that's the least thing that's possibly going to happen to them. It's intense pressure. And so what do they do? Verse 23, go back up there. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people. It's a little side note here. They have their own people, which is so important in the Christian life. And one of the themes we see, we've been seeing, we will continue to see throughout the book of Acts how important community is. And they go back to their own people here. Who are their own people? Well, it doesn't tell us specifically. It's not the whole church. 
Because at this point, there's 5,000 men plus women plus children. There's not a room big enough to hold all those people. And so it's, it's probably at least the 12, probably their family members. We know that Peter is married. Uh, it's probably their kids. It's probably maybe the 120. Maybe it's as many as 120 people. But they go back to their people. Because in a time of tragedy, in a time of difficulty, in a time of crisis, you realize you need people. And one of the things that we do as, at a church is we provide what we call e-groups. And I do a, a lunch every once in a while to get to know people and to kind of give them orientation to the church called Discovering Southbridge. And uh, I'll talk about groups at that. And every once in a while I'll get people to look at me kind of like, what is this trick you're trying? You're trying to get us to do groups. There's some kind of thing here. Like we're trying to like master scheme something that's happening. Like convince you to get in a group because it does something for us. <laughs> uh, let me just tell you, we do this for you. Uh, groups are because we love you. And because we realize that you need it. And, and as pastors, we see enough times where people don't realize they need this until they need it. And that's when they realize they don't have it. When they realize, now I need, now I need a job. Now I need a place to live. Now I need somebody to pray for me. Now I need someone to speak into my marriage. Now I need, and they don't have it. Peter and John, they had it. And they go to their own people and they report to them. And sometimes it's just, just sharing with someone takes off some of the burden. And they share with their people all the stuff the chief priests had said and all the elders had said to them. And so they take it to their community and then look, their community takes it to God. It says in verse 24, when they heard this, they, plural, raised their voices together in prayer to God. And then look at how they pray. They start with this address. Sovereign Lord, they said. That's the key. That's the beginning. See, God's sovereignty in a time of crisis, in a time of trial, in a time of difficulty should be two things to us. One, it's an incredible comfort. Two, it can be a challenge. And think about how comforting it is when you lose a job or there's a doctor's diagnosis or marriage starts going south or pick whatever thing could happen. God is not up in heaven going, oh man, I did, who would have known? He's not shaken. He doesn't have to alter his plan. He's not all of a sudden trying to reorganize stuff so that different things can happen. He's sovereign. Do you know what that means? That means he's in control. He's always in control, no matter what. Even when other people are plotting against him and fighting against him and all their wickedness, he's still in control. So that should be incredibly comforting to you and to me when we've got all this pressure and we want to change circumstances, we wish things were different, this is never how we would have planned it, that we realize that he's still on his throne, that he's not shaken, that he's in control, that he's sovereign. And that's what they're saying here. In this difficult time, God, you told us to go preach the gospel, and now we do, and bad stuff's happening, but you're still in control how comforting is that? Well, not just comforting, but if you're wired like me at all, where I like to be in control, and I like to believe that somehow I can manage this, and I kind of got this under control, it's challenging, because that means that even in situations where I think I have it all under control, I don't. Because he's the one that's in control. I'm not. So I can't manufacture stuff. You can't manufacture stuff. That's challenging. So sovereignty is comforting. It's challenging. And this whole prayer, verses 24 through 28, is about God's sovereignty. Look at it. He says, they say in the next thing together, it's probably one person praying on behalf of the whole group here. And they said, kind of crying out as they agree with the person who's praying, you made the heaven and the earth. You created all this stuff and the sea and everything in them. And you're in control of all that, even the hearts of Annas and Caiaphas. It says, you spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David, and they quote Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? And they're saying it like, if you're sovereign, why would anyone fight against you? Let me give you a little theology of fighting against God. Don't. It ends badly every time. Like, it happens a lot, and you can see it. Every northern king, and, and, and as you go through the Old Testament, they all did it. It ends badly every time. So just don't even do that, okay? If you're rebelling against God, just don't do that. Verse 26. 
It says the kings of the earth. So these are the people with the most power and the nations. They take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord, against this anointed one. Why would they do that? They're saying it's vain. It's, why would people plot in vain? And then they take the ultimate example, verse 27. It said, indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel and the city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. This is the most evil act that's ever happened in human history is that people plotted to kill God's son, Jesus. Murder of God. It didn't get any worse than that. And so they got the most wicked intentions ever possible. And then look at what they say. And they did what your power and will decided beforehand should happen. And so in their worst attempts to defy you, the best they could do is fulfill your plan. That's how sovereign you are, God. That you even take evil, and you even take wickedness, and you even take tragedy, and you even take trial, and you, you, you're so sovereign, you use that for our good and your own glory. That's comforting. Because no matter what happens, he takes the most wicked act ever, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. That's the most evil thing possible. And he provides your salvation. He takes evil and makes it for your good and for his own glory. How amazing is that? And then you think about when you're on life, what's, what's the most difficult trial you've been through? Or crisis? Or evil? Some of you had evil stuff done to you? Some of you experienced bad things? Or you just look at even at the news, you see tornadoes or, or tsunamis or tragedies or 9-11 and all kinds of stuff that we could list, all this bad stuff. And in all that, God's still sovereign, that God's still in control, that he's not shaken, that he's on his throne. And he even uses that stuff? You look at a guy like Joseph in the Old Testament and you see his story and you see how God is sovereignly in control and how important it is for us, the believers in Jesus, to have a vision of God's sovereignty. Joseph in the Old Testament is a guy that, uh, is the, as far as I remember, is the first guy that was a human trafficking experience. What happened with him was he had a vision from God of what he was going to do in his life and he told his brothers, it wasn't the great most tactful thing he had ever done before, he tells his brothers about this, his brothers hate him. And so his brothers sell him into slavery. Can you imagine having your siblings beat you, throw you in a pit, and then sell you to some slave traders? And that's what they do. And he gets into the slave trade market for a little while and eventually becomes involved in a sex scandal she was totally innocent in, didn't do anything wrong. In fact, was trying to be righteous. He gets falsely accused in a sex scandal and puts him in prison for a couple years. Can you imagine for a moment if you were in prison what you'd be thinking to yourself? Your sibling sold you into slavery. That's how you ended up getting here. You tried to do the right thing and then you end up there. What are you thinking? If I'm in prison at that moment, you know what I'm probably thinking? I'm probably thinking, I'm going to make them pay. When I get out, they're going to pay. I'm going to show them. At the very least, I'm thinking to myself, I'm going to show them by, they haven't heard the last of me. Like, I'm going to do something really good. It's kind of like when you ever see people get kicked off reality TV shows? They always say that at the end, right? You haven't heard the last from me. It's the last we hear from them, but that's, that's what they say at that moment. It's kind of, that's the mentality. At least I'd have that mentality if I was Joseph. But Joseph seems to have this vision of God's sovereignty that goes so far beyond that. And what you end up seeing is he gets let out of prison eventually and God gives him a position of power and his brothers, the very brothers who beat him, threw him in the pit and sold him into slavery, they stand before him. He has the opportunity at that point to bless them or curse them. He could pronounce something upon them that would be basically their destruction or he can bless them. Do you know what he does? He bless or curse. Do you know what he does? He blesses them. And do you know what he says to them? He says, you intended to harm me. He doesn't give them any credit. Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. He says, you intended evil. 
but God intended it for good. Because God can even take your wickedness and your evil and the stuff that you do, that he is so sovereign and he can use it for good. And then what he says is now it's the saving of many lives. Many people are being touched as a result of the wickedness that you did. So God can even take that and do something amazing through it. And you have a vision of God's sovereignty. A couple in our e-group, we were sharing this past week, we're at a place in our group, we're kind of sharing stories. Uh, when you share stories with one another in group, what ends up happening is you get an idea of why does this person see the scripture differently than I do? Why do they comment this life differently than I do? How do they have these perspectives and kind of understand them and get to know them? And so we ask people in our group every once in a while, just share your story. Tell us who you are and how God shaped you and what circumstances you used, people, all that kind of stuff. And uh, there's this one couple they were sharing and I was blown away by their vision of God's sovereignty. This is a couple, love Jesus, uh, do ministry, they pray, they do all, the, all the right stuff, bad stuff still happens in their life. And this couple was telling the story about one of the circumstances in their life that happened was one time they were on a trip and they were on a bike ride together and there was a person who was driving a car that was under the influence of prescription medication. They fell asleep at the wheel and ran into them. Uh, knocked the, hit the wife of the bike, but hit the husband in a way with his skull slammed into the, uh, the windshield. Caused a brain injury. And he said there's a 10-day block of his life he can't remember. He kind of blacked out in that situation. When that brain injury happened, though, when he was in the hospital, the doctor came in and told him uh, there were two people that had the same uh, brain injuries at the same time. One was an 18-year-old young man, and the other one was him. And the doctor said, if I were a betting man and I were going to pick who was going to survive, it would have been the 18-year-old. That's not how it happened. My friend made it through that situation. But it impacted his life. Now, by God's grace and his mercy, he was still mentally sharp, was still able to do his job and still able to think and see all these things. So he couldn't understand what the doctor told him. Uh, but things are going to change. You're not going to be able to work like you used to work. Now, he owns his own business. And uh, he told the doctor, I think it's kind of funny what he said to the doctor. He said, um, I've got these employees. They've got this habit uh, that I can't seem to break them of. It's getting a check every week. So I have to work. And the doctor said, I can't tell you what to do, but here's the deal. You're not going to be able to work more than 20 hours a week. And then for the next six years of his life, he only was able to work 20 hours a week. By God's grace, he still provided, provided for the employees, gave him the ability to do the work in a shorter amount of time. And, and by God's grace, he's still here with us. It's changed his personality some. It's changed some of his emotions. And at the end, when he was done sharing his story, we all went around and we prayed. Everybody in the group prays a prayer of thanksgiving for what we're thankful for for that person. And and when his wife was the last one to pray, and she prayed this sweet prayer about her husband, how much she loved him. And then she prayed, and maybe you remember this uh, verse from uh, the book of Job. She said, blessed is your name, God, because you give and you take away. And then she talked about how, how can you thank God for stuff that you want and you like and then not thank him for the stuff you don't want and you don't like. It's like you think you deserve the good stuff and you don't deserve the bad stuff. We don't deserve anything. And God's using all that stuff for our good and for his glory. What a vision of God's sovereignty they had. It's a challenge to me. And you look here in this passage, and they use the ultimate example of the cross. The most wicked thing ever, and the best they could do in their schemes and their plans against God is ultimately accomplish God's plan. That's how sovereignly in control he is. That's why we can trust him, because our trust is rooted in his sovereignty. And so I ask you, what pressure do you have in your life? What's the one you'd take away? And maybe he wants to use just that one to complete the work that he's doing in you. Like Philippians 1.6 says, that we being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion of the day of Christ Jesus. And maybe it's that pressure that he's using to mold you and to shape you. Now, I'm not a geologist. I don't know a lot about rocks and, and all those things, but do you know how a diamond's made? You know, you know what it takes, right? It takes intense heat and intense pressure. 
But at the end, what a beautiful product. And what he's trying to create in you is so much more beautiful than that. It's Christ in you that he's revealing through you and he's being faithful to do this work in you and maybe one of the things he's using is that pressure in your life right now. And that pressure should then lead you to prayer and look what the next thing they pray. Not only do they cry out about his sovereignty but in rooted in his sovereignty then they make these requests. Verse 29, Now Lord, consider the threats, all the stuff they've said, and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Don't give us deliverance, give us obedience. Verse 30, stretch out your hand and heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders to the name of your holy servant, Jesus. You know what they're praying here? They're ultimately praying for radical obedience, and that's what prayer should lead us to. The passionate prayer should lead us to radical obedience because something happens in prayer with God. Sometimes we go in and we think we're going to get our way and we're going to tell God what to do. We kind of manipulate. We don't say that, but it's kind of our motivation. Like, here's this thing I want, and I'm going to go to God, and I'm going to try and get him to do it. You know what God does? It's the supernatural work where he changes our wills to be in line with his. Not our will, but his will be done. And you know what his will is for us? It's radical obedience. And so what we see happen here is they go to the Lord, they acknowledge his sovereignty, and then what they request is the very thing that God desires from them, that they would be radically obedient because passionate prayer should lead us to radical obedience for him. And so the question we have to ask is, if you look at our lives, would you define them as radically obedient? I'm not just saying like they're, they're moral, but radical obedience because you look at what they pray here, they don't pray for deliverance, they don't pray for protection, they don't pray for any, all this other stuff, but they pray for obedience. Enable us to be bold for you. Give us the ability, give us the power. Help us to do that. And I think about what I would pray if I were in this situation. Think about what you'd pray if you're Peter and John. God told you you have to speak in his name. And then the Annas and Caiaphas say you can't. Then you say we will. And they say if you do, we'll kill you. What are you going to pray at this moment? You know, I think if I were praying, I'd probably pray like a couple of the disciples do at Luke chapter 9. Jesus gets rejected in the town in Samaria. And then and they say, Jesus, do you want us to call down fire from heaven on their heads? I'd probably be like, fire, Annas, drop it on his head. Can you do that right now? That, that's what we, that'd be like the prayer that I'd be praying. Or, or some of our prayers might go more like this. Uh, the wrong guy's in office. And so if you just make it easier for us all, wouldn't that be a great prayer for them to pray? God, you made a mistake letting Annas be in charge of the Sanhedrin. He won't say that, but that's what you're really saying. You made a mistake because you've appointed who the kings and the elders and the rulers and the leaders are. And so, if you would just change it to work out more according to our plan, that we can see how this will work out better and we could freely go about and share the gospel. But God knows there's power in persecution, there's power in this pressure. And they acknowledge that because God is sovereign. Well, God, just deliver us from this. Put us in a different place, a place that's easier to live. Like, move, I mean, we're here, in the, we're right in the middle of Jerusalem. Couldn't you put us in like Hawaii or something? Like, there's other spots, right? Think about all the prayers you'd pray. And, and look at what they pray. They pray for obedience. God, enable us to be bold, verse 29. Help us do the very thing you want us to do. Why would they pray that? There's two reasons. First reason, they pray for enablement, that God grant us the power, give us the ability, is because they can't do it. And they realize that. And a lot of us don't realize that. A lot of us think that we can live the Christian life in our own power. It's one of the reasons why many of us live such a, a lukewarm, kind of average, mediocre Christian life. Because we're trying to do it in our own power, with our own discipline, and by our own flesh. If we could just kind of buckle up and try harder. If I was just more self-disciplined, then I'd do a better job. And, and Peter already knows that doesn't work. Remember when Jesus told him, hey, you're going to deny me after you turn back, strengthen the brother? He goes, I won't deny you. He kind of puffs out his chest. I got this. Yeah, that doesn't work. 
And so here he comes differently. He says, Here's, I want to do the right thing. Would you give me the power to do it? Here's the great news. When you depend upon God, he enables you to do everything he's commanded you to do. See, he, you can't obey him on your own. But when you surrender to him, he gives you the ability because the life he wants you to live is not a life you can live on your own. It's a supernatural life with supernatural boldness, a supernatural love, a supernatural peace, a supernatural holiness, supernatural transformation of your mind, supernatural that you'd be noteworthy because people would see Jesus in you. And the only way that happens is through his power. And so when you surrender him, great news is this, he enables you to do it. And you see that all throughout the scripture. Some of you are watching... Uh, the Bible on the History Channel right now. I don't know if you've seen that or not. Sunday nights, I think it's 8 o'clock or 9 o'clock. Uh, the Bible's coming on. It's their version of telling the different Bible stories. And they hit some, they skip over some. But, uh, did you watch some of that? See a guy like Abraham? Abraham was an idol worshiper. Like many people, worshiped hundreds of different gods, different you know, powers he went to for different things. And then God calls him to be the father of our faith and to worship one true God. Abraham could never do that on his own. God does that through Abraham. You look at Moses. Remember Moses comes to the burning bush? Did you see their burning bush? Their bush was way bigger than the one I imagined. Did you see that? They had a big old burning bush there. You remember that conversation according to what the Bible says? Moses says, I can't speak. You want me to, how am I going to be your guy and lead a nation? I can't speak. You know, he's a stuttering problem or something happened and he wasn't able to do it. What does God say? Who made your mouth? If I made your mouth, I can make you speak and I can make you mute. Like, I'm in control. I'm sovereign is what he's saying. And I got the power, and I will empower you. You look at Samson. Samson was last week. A lot of times you read the Bible stories, and we talk almost like the strength was in his hair. And that was a covenant, you know, promised to you. He was supposed to keep that commitment, not to cut his hair. But you see he had power after his hair got cut? You know why? Because his power came from God. It didn't come from hair. His strength came from the Lord. You go to the New Testament. You see in the New Testament, what about the feeding of the 5,000? You remember how that happens? The disciples say, hey, Jesus, send them away. They need to go get something to eat. Jesus says, you feed them. Tallying our resources here, we can't do that. Jesus says, exactly. But now I'm going to do that. You're going to feed them, and nobody leaves hungry that day. And Peter, come on out of the boat, Peter. Peter can't walk on water. He does for a little while, as long as he's focused on Jesus. Because God will enable us to do the things that he's commanded us to do. And so, what has he commanded you to do? Well, one of the things we know we've been commanded to do is to be bold. And here, that's what they're crying out for. They say in verse 29, enable us to be bold. Enable us to do the very thing you desire for us to do. You said you will be my witnesses. Then give us the power to do that because on our own, we can't. Why do they pray this? Because they realize they can't. Why else do they pray this? There's two reasons. Second reason why they pray this is because they know their mission. You will be my witnesses. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. At the gospel of repentance and forgiveness, it will be preached. Luke chapter 24, verses 47 through 49. It will be preached in all the nations. You know who's going to preach it? You, me, believers. Matthew chapter 28, the popular one. All authorities in heaven and earth give to me. Go make disciples. Teach them everything I taught you. You've got to use words. We talked about that last week. You have to say something. You've got to be bold. John chapter 20, it's there. Mark chapter 16, it's there. It's all over the place. The mission that you have, what you're supposed to be doing, I've given it to you. Imagine if their mission was something else, how they would have prayed differently. What if Peter and John's mission was safety? God, give us a safe place where we can go to. We'll hunker down in our home, kind of like a big fortress, and kind of be with us and our family. And Peter's got a family, so he's got kids, wife, kids, and they're there, and you know, us four, no more. Close the door, everybody out there is bad. Sometimes Christians act like that. Like our mission is self-protection. Or what if their mission was comfort? What if their life mission was to be comfortable? And as soon as this happened, you know what? Back to the fishing business. We know how to do that. It provides for our families. 
we're comfortable doing that. We'll live a quiet life. We'll be nice people. We'll be more, not rebelling against you, God. We're just going to kind of live a life. Average life. What if, what if it was that they were planning for retirement? Or, you know, what if it was that they just you wanted to be nice? and you would, Call the financial planner. Transfer the funds. We're moving to a new part of town. You know, get out of here. They knew their mission. And their mission required boldness. And so that required words. God, give us the words to speak. Enable us. Give us the power to speak the words. And you look at our culture. We've got people that are bold about all kinds of stuff. I was reading last week. I read a story about a young lady named Malala. I don't know if you've heard of her or not. Uh, she's 15 years old right now. She is the youngest person that's ever been nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize. And uh, her situation is she lives in Pakistan, a young woman in Pakistan under Taliban control there. And when she was about 11 or 12 years old back in 2009, uh, she started writing a blog under a pseudonym. That's a fake name. So she had a fake name, and she wrote a blog about what it was like to be an 11 or 12-year-old young girl living underneath this Taliban rule. And she started talking and pleading with people to get an education, pleading with other 11 and 12-year-old young girls to get an education, to come to school, because she was going to school. The Taliban didn't like that. So they put her on a hit list. Didn't have the real name. 2012, they figured out who she was. And she was riding home on the school bus, and one of their guys got on the bus with a gun, started pointing at all the kids, said, who's Malala? Everybody's freaking out, panicking. And the guy said, tell me who Malala is, or I'm killing everybody. She stands up. He shoots her in the face and in the neck, and she survived. And she's still speaking out. And she's speaking out on behalf of education for young women in Pakistan, that everybody should have an education. And even little girls should have an education. That's bold. That's courageous when you understand her circumstances. Now, I'm all for kids getting educated, every kid in the world getting an education. I've got girls. I'm all for young ladies getting an education. I'm, I'm, I get that. Here's the thing, though, that blows my mind, is that there are some people in the church, Christians, that would be more appalled at the fact that there are people around the world that aren't getting an education than that their next-door neighbors don't know Jesus. Amen. Last time I checked, the mortality rate was coming in right about 100%. So that means everybody has to deal with eternity. And as believers, we've been given in our life, in, in these jars of clay, we've been given the gospel treasure that can transform somebody's life here and all of eternity. And, and we get people that would be more bold about education. Let me tell you, you can be educated and still go to hell. I'm not against education. I ain't not nothing about it. Nothing, nothing wrong with it, okay? Nothing wrong with some education. Education, you got it. I'm not against animal rights. Like, people speak out on behalf of animal rights. I've got, we own a dog, okay? I love animals. Animals are great. But in perspective, that we would lack boldness for the gospel? Well, what's wrong with us? This radical obedience here for these guys. They know their life mission, and they know what it is they're supposed to be doing, boldly proclaiming Jesus Christ, and that's what they desire to do. And they pray this, and you think that's radical obedience? Look at the next part of their prayer, verse 30. Seems just like a nice prayer. Like, yeah, that's great. Miracles? Look at what he says. Stretch out your hand, Lord. So give us the ability to do what you want us to do. And then verse 30, and then you do what only you can do, God. Stretch out your hand to heal, perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Well, who doesn't want that? Who doesn't want more people that are lame to be able to walk? Who doesn't want more people that are blind to be able to see? Who doesn't want more people that don't know Jesus to come into the kingdom? Miracles, just do the miracles. But for one minute, just think about it from Peter and John's perspective. Imagine you're Peter and John. Do you think in a cynical moment that they could potentially think to themselves, if we just hadn't healed that guy, 
Go back to chapter 3. If we just hadn't said to that guy, get up and walk, then we would have never been arrested. And if we hadn't been arrested, we wouldn't have gone before Annas. If we hadn't gone before Annas, our lives wouldn't be in danger. I don't think they thought that, though. I think that their perspective was, if we hadn't healed that guy, his life would have never been changed. And then all those other people that came in, they wouldn't have heard about Jesus. Acts chapter 4, verse 4. And many believed the message as a result of that. The number grew to about 5,000 men. So all those people, and we would have never had a platform before Annas like we had. Who, how are they going to get an opportunity to stand before the most powerful man in the Jewish world and proclaim Jesus Christ and him crucified, who he crucified? And we wouldn't have had that platform. And yeah, our lives wouldn't be in danger. I get it. But God, keep doing what you've been doing. The lame guy at the gate, do that again. Heal him and heal some more and save some more and do some more. And essentially what they're praying is this. And whatever that means for us, you're sovereign. If it means we lose our lives, that's fine. If it means we're flogged, that's fine. This is a prayer of radical obedience. We'll do whatever it takes, and you can do whatever it takes, that you might make more people come into the kingdom, that you would make your name known, that you'd spread the fame of your glory around our world. And that's why God uses people like this to transform the world. And so then I ask you, would you even dare to pray God, do whatever you have to do in my life that more people will come to know you. And before you answer yes or no, think about what that might mean. What if that means cancer? What if that means you lose a job and so that someone else sees how you handle losing the job? Or you lose a loved one? Or, and pick worst case scenario, or you get accused of something and get falsely arrested and imprisoned. You lose your reputation. You lose your money. You lose the fill in the blank. Would you go to God and say, God, you do whatever it takes that more people will come to know you. I love what Paul prays in Romans chapter 9, verse 3. He says, I'll give my own salvation if my brothers would come into the kingdom. So for I wish that I myself could be cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. So I would experience eternal damnation if more people would come into the kingdom. My brothers, the other Jews would come into the kingdom. Do you love anyone like that? I'll tell you just briefly, some of you are newer to our church. Back in the fall, we challenged all the members of our church. Uh, if you want to connect people to Jesus for life change, do this. Pray for one person. Pray for one person this year that they would come to know Christ and care for them and love them and share with them. And, but pray for that one. Now, let me ask you this. If you knew that it meant your one would come to Christ, would you say, God, do whatever you have to do in my life? Whatever that is. That's radical obedience. There will be pressure in all of our lives. Daily pressure, difficult things happen, tragedies, trials, all kinds of crisis. Would you be bold enough that instead the next time, and, and I'm not saying it's not wrong to pray for protection, it's not wrong to pray for, de for deliverance, but what about radical obedience? God, don't change the circumstances, change me. And don't remove me from this, use this. Show how you're a redeemer. Even take the bad stuff. Use that for my good and for your glory. That's radical obedience. And what we're going to do as we conclude today is we're going to go to the Lord and we're going to pray. We're going to ask him to do whatever he wants to do in us as a church. And as you pray, you can pray even individually. Maybe you have specific circumstances. I've asked a couple of our leaders in our church to pray. These are elders and guys that are on our leadership team that works with the, the elders in our church. And um, we're going to ask them to pray over us. These are guys that pray for you as a body on a regular basis. They pray for some of you by name on a regular basis. And just however the Lord leads them to pray for us as a church. And I'm going to begin us. Let's, let's bow before the Lord. Let's pray. 
our sovereign Father God, we come before you. And it's in your name that we ask you to do whatever you need to do in our church, in our lives, in our homes, in our families, with our health, with our money, with our minds, with our anything, God, that you would further your kingdom. God, we surrender to you. We come before you. We ask you to transform us into the people you desire for us to be. And God, we're so thankful that we can trust no matter what happens that you're sovereign, that you're in control. And Father, I pray that you would bless us in whatever way you see fit. That your will would be done, not ours. 